So since I don't come here very often, maybe the last time, life is uncertain, as you know, um, I'll speak, I'll say a little bit about practice, and I thought it would be maybe good for you to have a time to, if you want to ask me any questions about practice, or other than me giving you a whole talk, and then, do you think that's a good idea? Yes? No? Come on, wake up. <laughs> good. <laughs> Meditation is not to put you to sleep, eh? <laughs> Keep your discommunity faculties alert. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of mystique about meditation, is there not? What we think meditation is. You know, is it to become really peaceful and calm and look like a, an enlightened spiritual person? Is it to um, be more successful in one's life so we can just get more money and a bigger car and a bigger house and a better job and have uh, more people envying, envying us and jealous or whatever? Is it, um, people think sometimes meditation is to levitate and maybe one day they'll be able to multiply. Being one place, they can be in two places, being two places, they can be in three. Or walking through walls, or walking on water, or, or the miraculous, the miracles that sometimes are associated with the practice of meditation. Levitating. Wouldn't it be nice to stop having to drive a car and just kind of zoom through the street of Palo Alto? in full lotus. <laughs> you certainly would attract some people <laughs> for attention. And so there's a lot of misconceptions and wrong views about what the Buddhist practice is, religious practice, spiritual path, and so on. One can be very confused by all the informations one is exposed to when you think about what meditation is. Before Buddhism came into the West, came to the West, um, the word meditation was had a particular connotation, didn't it? It was the ability to uh, contemplate to um, be quiet and just to contemplate life, to open oneself to life, to go to a quiet place perhaps and maybe read something or think about some particular maybe philosophical problem or some existential question and ponder about them and let the heart go silent and relax and deepen uh, to deepen one's understanding of things, you know. It was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I think, the French writer who wrote a number of texts called Meditation. If, I, if my memory is good. <laughs> it's one of those French, I'm French, so I should know, I should know quite well, but one of those French writers of the, the past, using the word meditation. And so, um, 
I think it's always good to come back to, you know, even before Buddhism came here, <clears throat> what this word meditation actually meant. Because it's not very far from meditation practice. One aspect of meditation is, um, you know, it's what we call in, in Pali, it's called Yoniso Manasikara, is wisely reflecting on things. Wisely reflecting. What does that mean? You know, you think, oh, meditation, just sitting in full lotus, sitting, get my hands in the right place, my knees in the right place, my feet in the right place, and just sit quietly, and every sound that bothers me, oh, I want to kill them. I want to kill whatever is the cause of my disturbances right now. That's not meditation. That's stupidity. That's being really dumb. And that's what many people think meditation is. Shut everything out. I've got the right to be angry on my cushion if anybody disturbs my silence and my peace of mind. This is being totally dumb. Because that's not what meditation is about. That's one aspect of meditation, to be quiet and to concentrate. But really, the heart of practice is to um, investigate the nature of reality. To investigate. The Buddha doesn't ask us to, you know, go into one of those sensory deprivation tank, lie there, and be enlightened after a few years. That was not the path that he was pointing to. You know, he was um, showing us a way that brought the mind in, a, 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 focused the mind in such a way that you would be able to deepen your contemplation of the rea nature of reality. And he made this task very easy for us because we have a, a field of reality which is always with us, which we call me, Joe, Harry, Josephine, Mary, me. The reality that we are always living with, which most of the time we dr just drag ourselves around, don't we? We just are in the way most of the time. This person here, the reality I am confronted with all day long. It's just a hindrance. Most, for most people, it becomes just a, a thing that you just, an appendage kind of thing that just is in the way. How many of us want to get rid of the body altogether? In fact, we do meditation a lot of the time just to get rid of everything. Not just the body, but the mind, <laughs> friends, parents, mom and dad. <laughs> you hope you don't think about them anymore. You hope all your problems will go away. All your difficult children will just be at bay once you meditate in your cushion in your room. And of course the dogs start barking, the children start playing music, and the, the car is, breaks down, and the, the boss tells you you've been fired, and your meditation tells you you're hopeless, your meditation teacher tells you you're hopeless. Oh my God, I've lost it all. What a terrible catastrophe. Can you, at that moment, be a true meditator. What is to meditate in those times? Is it to start, you know, feeling so sorry for oneself that you suddenly fall apart altogether, but not in the right sense? I was talking to you about on Monday, you know, letting the, 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 the assumption we have fall apart, yes. But how do we respond when life is not the way we 
expect it to be. Mm -hmm. Do we use our meditation to make sure that life is in control? That life is going to be just the way we always want it to be? Or we hope it will be one day? <coughs> don't we assume a lot, don't we? And many people use their meditation in the same way. A lot of assumptions. And this is not a judgment, by the way. It's very natural. We bring to our cushion, or we bring to our, the present moment, whatever we are. So, if we, have, if we have a mind that is running at 120 miles an hour, well, 200 miles an hour, really, in America, 120 miles is not that fast, is it? 200 miles an hour, and desire that are just kind of rushing, gushing through our chitta, through our mind, you know, what are we going to settle? <laughs> you think you're going to be sitting on a quiet pile of peace and quiet and emptiness and um, serenity and, you know, you'll be sitting on this, you'll be sitting with this, with this energy that just got gushing and rushing and wanting and desiring. And lo and behold, you will be really surprised how many people just sit there and hoping everything to be quiet push it down, press it down, oppress it, repress it, suppress it, whatever. Do something to not experience oneself. You know. Not experience the life that we are here. So a lot of meditation practice is actually some other form of... <laughs> I wouldn't want to use the word suicide. <laughs> no, don't quote me on that, please. But it's a way sometimes of just getting rid of all the things we don't like. Isn't it? Instead of opening ourselves to the realities or the nature of the reality, right here, right now, in this very moment. Now, of course, if we're going to live in a reality, in a particular reality, we, we want it to be really pleasant, don't we? I mean, who wants something unpleasant and difficult and painful and boring and uninteresting and um, depressing and so on? I mean, we all here to, hopefully, with uh, 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 interest in, in um, living a, a, best, you know, a life that is a bit more harmonized, a bit more whole, a bit more um, a bit less motivated by fears. to become fearless in the face of um, difficulties. You, know. you look at the world nowadays and um, what are we confronted with? You turn right, left, up or down, it's all fraught with a lot of problems, isn't it? A lot of dukkha, suffering, dukkha. A lot of Dukkha, one of the meaning of dukkha, by the way, is that which is difficult to bear. We can understand that easily, can't we? You know, we are confronted, surrounded by many things that are difficult to bear. We don't have to wait for the 11th of September to start thinking, well, life is really heavy. <laughs> I think we've had plenty of 11th of September within, at some level, somewhere, sometime in our life, a crisis of some sort, something dies a person, a loved one. 
our cherished identity maybe dies, we get laid off, our world crumbles, doesn't it? So where is our, where are we in those moments? Who are we to, you know, wh where is life in those, in those moments where suddenly we lose something and we feel so identified with the loss that we just fall apart altogether? You know, mother at some point lose their children, they go off to university, people separate, people um, lose their loved ones, dogs, cats husband, wife, partners, mother, and so on. So wherever you turn, there's, there's a, some sort of a, a realm of pain, is there not? Well, it's, if it's not in your family, maybe it's your neighbor. If it's not your neighbor, maybe it's, you, you know, it's around the world, it's, it's all over. Isn't it? It's all over. And we can be so incredibly... Um, weighed down by this pain that the world is exposing us all the time. It's not the world, it's the media that keeps exposing us to all this, you know, this sort of mass of suffering that is at the heart of the Buddha's message. What do we do? Isn't it confusing? Should I go and help, you know, the... the, 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 the the, the, how, whatever, whatever people is in need right now, you know, should I go to Afghanistan or should I go and help the Israeli or should I go, f you know, fight with the Palestinian or should I go and march for peace, should I go and just go and get drunk <laughs> instead or <laughs> should I go and <laughs> should I go and save the wells or, you know, should I go and whatever, some, you know, we want maybe to help the world and then the other side of oneself is that you just want to sort of bury your head in the sand and get drunk and forget everything. We don't have any alternatives. Have you noticed how your mind, I mean, how many alternatives the mind conjure up? Either you want to go out and do everything or, you know, you feel very positive and life is, you know, you feel life is very manageable and you can go and help and so on. Or So there's, you know, the backlash is when we attach to this and also it's, we get very depressed and very down, very feeling really lost. Yeah. So, what is missing most on the, on, in the human realm, in, our, in this world as human, is um, a, a foundation of trust, a foundation of um, what do we trust, you know, where do we turn to actually feel a sense of faith and trust, confidence in oneself, in life. You know, where do we turn to contact that, that strength that comes from trusting that deep down, whatever happens, um, life doesn't have to be shattered. Life doesn't have to turn against me. You know, life doesn't have to diminish me. handicap me. I don't have to feel um, disempowered, undermined by life, do I? And, that, and yet, how many times do we let ourselves be that? You know, be 
rid of strength, of confidence, of power, of of trust in our own potential, in the potential we have as human beings. You know, it's very sad. Sad. Life is a really sad story, because most of us don't have a refuge, don't have anything to turn to. Maybe in the old days, God was a you know, for Christians anyway, there was a, a refuge. For those great agnostics, that, well, we're not even agnostic, we just don't. <laughs> it's neither, maybe you're not, it's just so many people just don't. Um, anyway, in Europe, I don't know about America, whether you're more Christian or more inclined spiritually, but you know, there's not very little to turn to except just uh, material satisfaction and uh, successes and so on. So, this refuge is a very important aspect of practice. I often talk about this because it's, uh, I can't speak too long about it, unfortunately, but uh, what the Buddha was saying, the Buddhist teaching is, is, is telling us, yes, there is a lot of suffering in life, there's no doubt. You don't need to have a, a major crisis to suffer. You don't need to be on deathbed to suffer. Just right here, right now, you all intuit that there is something that is missing. You think it's a partner, maybe. We think, oh, I need a pet, or maybe I need a degree, or I need a PhD, or maybe I need a, you know, a better car to impress people, really. <laughs> or I need more money so I can get a better girlfriend or boyfriend. <laughs> or I need, you know, to go on holiday. <laughs> I mean, that's quite fair enough. I need more money to go on holiday. It's missing. <laughs> I like to go to Hawaii, you say, maybe. Well, I can't go because I have to work and I have to earn my living and... So on, my children needs me, and you know. So it's it's life is not never turned off, you know, the way we want it to be. And the um, you know the the the, this, the long before we are interested in Buddhism or meditation, all of us have the potential to become aware of what's happening and to open ourselves to new perspectives. You know, often our perspectives are very narrow. Me. <laughs> me, what I want. Me, me, me. You know, what is, what is in, in it, what is in this for me? What can I get out of this for me? You know, poor me. What else can happen to me one day? How can people make me happy? <laughs> What can they do to me? What can they give me? Give, give for me. I'm so important, I'm so special, I'm so unique, me. You know. So from that perspective, life is an utter misery. Do you agree? <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> it's pretty miserable. But we don't notice that until something really happens to me. Have you noticed? When me becomes sick or is threatened somehow, we begin to realize that maybe at that moment we have a very important lesson there because we begin to perhaps for the first time to realize that that little me, that little cocoon in which we've been living all these years is totally unsatisfactory. It's not the place to identify with. It's not what you want to identify. It's not what you want to think you are. But we don't, you know, for me, before I started meditation, I was encouraged to meditate, and I used to say, you must be mad, me, meditate, what's the point, you know, I've got things to do. <laughs> I'm busy. <laughs> this is for the, gran the old, you know, grannies. 
this is for people that are just totally hopeless, you know, they meditate, so they've got nothing else to do, you know, might as well meditate. Me, meditate, you must be joking. This is a kind of conceit that we carry in our mind, you know. We don't think we are, or rather we think we are above all this. You know, we are above this um, capacity to be aware of our uh, limitations. So a, a refuge in this practice means understanding that within each one of us we have the capacity to transform ourselves beyond all external conditions. External conditions can be helpful, but when they are not helpful, it doesn't mean you're losing that refuge. So in, in Buddhism we have three refuges. You become homeless as a monk or nun, but you get a good deal really, because you get three refuges instead. They're very safe. They don't have any roof, they don't have any walls, they don't have any central heating, nothing in fact. But they are right here in your heart, you can carry them around and cost nothing. So it's a pretty good deal. No rent. <laughs> you don't have to buy them. You notice it's all on Dana here. <laughs> Even the external refuge. This is a refuge here. The center is a refuge. So, you know, Buddha speaks about the three refuge. Buddha, refuge in Buddha means to be awake. Refuge in wisdom, the wisdom of the Buddha. The wisdom of the awakened mind. Refuge in Dhamma, the truth, the teaching, the way that is shown by the Buddha. And refuge in Sangha. Sangha is refuge in the community. Sangha means a group of people. It's a community. And it's also a symbol for the purity that this community um, symbolizes. Not purity in the sense of, you know, clean, and sort of um, pure, pure, you know, what we imagine, puritanical. Exactly. <laughs> No, I'm talking about the purity of, you know, the wisdom and the compassion and the, 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 the yearning, the aspiration to free one's heart from all that is hindering it from manifesting fully the compassion and the wisdom that is really right in it, right there, resting in it, you know. So when you go home and you have maybe feel weighed down in your heart, you feel depressed maybe. Life is really not that fun at some level. If you look deeply, I mean if each one of us look in our heart, we won't, and we don't lie to ourselves anymore, we feel there's a lot of pain there. A lot of unsatisfied things and a lot of, um, a lot of suffering. A lot of loneliness, sadness, a lot of feeling of wanting to be with somebody, wanting to, to commune, wanting to be part of something. And there's also the side of us that just say, no, I don't want anybody. I'm on my own. I'm independent. I don't want to hear all that stuff. I don't want to teach her. You know, I want to be me. So we have many sides to ourselves, as you know. And we tend to identify with everything and we get very confused because the messages are so many. You know, one day we can be a wonderful bodhisattva, want to give everything to the world. The next day we might be depressed and feel down and just want to write to all our friends who annoyed us at some point, <laughs> get even. And then the next day we feel, you know, maybe um, doubtful about everything think that the world is coming to an end and 
we have we think and of course this is attracting all our memory of failures and confusion and so on you know your mind attracts exactly what's in it remember that so if you're full of fear and you identify with fear you will attract fear and if you're full of doubt and you really identify with your doubt you will attract all, all the doubts that's been there in, with you for the last many years you will remember oh yes I questioned this and I wasn't sure of this and I was, you know, and say, oh my god I'm a terrible person I keep doubting I don't know anything about anything you know so you tend to attract you know what you identify with this is why it's you know it's a sense of urgency it rises in the heart very naturally I want to attract love compassion <laughs> happiness well-being you know and it's great. It's a great incentive. If you're really going to be creatures of happiness, and this country is definitely bent on it deeply, you know, not going to do anything unless it's going to make you happy. Well, it's good. I, you know, then you can really. It's an incentive to actually fill your heart with the necessary conditions to make you happy truly, rather than um, unhappy. So those three refuges, of course, um, at first they, they, they're very strange, you know, they're just words. What does it mean? Buddha Dhamma Sangha, being awake, the truth and the, um, you know, and, and the, the, the community, a Sangha. The, the, you know, if some of you have seen the, 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 uh, 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 a Buddha a statue of a Buddha, haven't you? This one doesn't have one. This is a Western Buddha, you see. It doesn't have that lotus foundation that most Asian Buddha have. Have you seen Buddha? They have a, usually they're standing on the lotus flower. Well, you could say the symbol of the Sangha is that lotus flower. It's the purity of a lotus. The lotus has its roots in the mud and grows slowly out of water. So we're like the lotus. We are in the mud. This is a mud. And our heart is through the practice rising, not above the, the mud. We're not trying to get rid of this body. But it's, it's getting to know little by little that we are not this body. We are not this mind, this conditioned mind. We are not this. And I'm not here to convince you of this. But this is the... the <coughs> If you are able to let go of your uh, complete um, conviction, total conviction that happiness is the way to go, if you can let go of this completely, then you might find true happiness, which true happiness comes from actually bearing with suffering. And you don't need to look for suffering. Don't worry. You don't need to look for it. You don't need to go anywhere. It's right here, right under your nose, this body and this mind, the Buddha said, he said an interesting, he, he, he said something interesting. He said, somebody was asking him, how do you go to the end of the world? Is it by walking? And the Buddha said, no, you don't go to the end of the world by walking. You never go to the end of the world by walking. But, I teach that there is no, it's a complicated logical thing, I have to think a little bit. It's, you don't go, there is no ending. You don't go to the end of the world unless there is the ending of suffering. You don't go to the end of the world unless there is ending of suffering. And the world in Buddhism, remember, it's not mountains, river, hills, and 
butterflies. It's a world that you create in your mind. It's a world of suffering, really. That's what the world that it's a world of delusion. It's a world that comes out of delusion, that comes out of attachment, comes out of greed, hatred and delusion. This is what we add and this is what we um, we, we uh, impose on ourselves without knowing a world which is very painful, which is prevent us from, from this knowing, knowing of the inner freedom that's already there within ourselves. So, whenever you have difficulties in your life, whenever things really get heavy, gets really difficult, unbearable, when you have a true refuge in your heart, when you really trust the awakened mind, you trust really the truth, that there is a truth, there is a Dhamma, there is ultimate truth, and you, you have, you, you, you trust there is also a connection with the heart which is, you know, awake and compassionate and wise, then those unbearable moments, instead of being, um, you know, the, uh, a time of complete total disaster and a complete crushing experience, are the very gateway to deepen your path of practice, to transform, to, to deepen the path of transformation, to deepen your potential to transform yourself. And I'm not um, trying to be poetical or anything, or you know, trying to inspire you in a particular way, but it is true that those moments very often are totally missed we are so far ahead of our difficulty that we miss right there and then the very moment that is going to transform you and make you, make you more whole, make you more, much stronger, much more a beautiful being, a beautiful person. I read recently a book which I think probably many of you must know called Tuesday with Maury. Maury? Okay, it's a lovely book because it's without being a Buddhist or without being anything. You can see that this person had, in a way, used his life right to the end to go into the mystery of his own being, of his own heart. And we, can, we don't need to be sick, you know, to be bedridden to start there. But we have to know that a path of practice is leading, leading you to that place. You know, and maybe you don't want to be here. <laughs> you don't need, you know, it's leading you to that deep, profound sense of peace that allows you to actually function much better in life. Don't think that you become dysfunctional. And to function without fear and without, um, you know, with, with, without... the limitations of what we think we are a lot of the time. So, um, 
for those who are a little bit new on this practice, you know, um, even though you don't know what those three refuges means, because they, it's a deepening of experience. You know, it's like the more you are awake to the to the to your life, the more you endeavor to practice, to practice a way, the way shown by the the Buddhist teaching, and the more you. Um, you know, the more you realize that within yourself there is a friend. You know, there is. You have a good friend within yourself to help you. You know, not alone. And this, this, this is manifest just by the the, the, the symbol of the sangha, the, the, the externally. You have this friends, but internally there's also a great compassionate heart here, a great compassionate and wise heart. But you need to give it a little bit of room so it can speak and express itself. And to do that, you do have to go into that mode where you, you become, you know, you are allowing yourself to be in that meditative state, contemplative state. In your daily life you might not be able to get into the eighth jhana, or deep concentration practice, you might not be able, you're doing that driving your car is a sure way to get you to the cemetery. You know. You might not be able to develop a lot, for, a lot of formal practice. But there are times just during the day where you can let your mind open and relax and just breathe in and out and let go of the, the, the you know, for a few minutes, even for a few minutes, of the entanglement that one is are part of a lot of one's daily life. Mm. Okay, I probably said a lot already. And please, if you have any question, it can be really. I don't mind being challenged, and it's fine, up to a certain point, <laughs> <laughs> within my precepts. <laughs> And it can be a really silly question. It's a story. They don't have to be super intelligent or clever. Or... What did you do? Why? Yeah, why? Did I become a Buddhist? Yeah. Um, well, because I thought it was a very, a, a very, a teaching that was very practical. And could be, um, um, you know, I felt the, the, the good result from this just immediate teaching very quickly. You know, I could see that just by being aware and mindful, you could decondition your mind. Because I realized my mind was very conditioned by certain things. Prejudices, ideas, views, opinions, and so on. Fears, anxiety, worry, love, hate, jealousy, envy, the whole lot. I don't think I'm the only one, am I? Yeah? No? Am I alone like this? No? <laughs> so, you know, I, I saw that mindfulness was able, I was able to let go just by not moving away from the experience. Most of the time we tend to, you know, whenever something is unpleasant, the mind immediately moves away from it. It just will do anything to distract itself from the experience because it's unpleasant. And yet, it's that very moment of unpleasantness that you need to really be with to let it go. It's very mature teaching. It doesn't get you, you can't get away with anything in a way. You know? 
So I find that very interesting. I personally was really keen on it. I thought that's really an intelligent teaching. That's fun. You don't have to run away from anything. You can actually face and get transformed. Well, that's pretty good. You know, and let it go in that moment. Of course, it's not as easy always as that. Don't worry. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty dense sometimes and tough and difficult. But I felt it was very practical. You know, and did, I did not need to believe in anything. I did not need to have a dogmas of some sort that I had to read and so on. You know, it was just here and now. There is suffering. The, there is the ending of suffering. You know, stop. How do you get there? That's what I was interested. <laughs> How do you get to the end of suffering? So that was really a motivating factor for me. You know, and it's not like a big intense suffering. You just look into your heart and you can feel the pettiness of your own heart, don't you, in everyday life. You know, you like somebody, you want to grab them. You don't like somebody, you want to get rid of them. Somebody says something a little bit nasty, you know, you want to, you don't, you want to them, you want, you wish they could be dead sometimes, don't you? Or you want to confront them or, you know, some, not, you're not very nice, not very nice feeling in the heart. So, that answer your question? Do you understand when I speak, by the way? Is it too fast with my French accent and English-British tone? No? Okay. I, I don't think I'll ever get an American accent. In fact, yesterday I, I lost comp- all hope of ever getting an American accent because there was a, a gentleman who was here in one of the meetings we had here and he came from London. He's been here for about 25 years and he had a thick Cockney London accent. Really thick. <laughs> That's amazing. I said, 25 years in America and he has lots of one vowels, you know, with a Cockney accent. <laughs> so, I probably will never get it. I've mixed, you know, between French, English now. And <laughs> so, you have no question at all. I'm really disappointed. <laughs> Completely disappointed. Yes, I'll work with it. <laughs> yes. Uh, one of the things that's come up from you know, practice lately is seeing that there's sometimes when I just feel a sense of resignation. Yes. That I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, but there's some there is that feeling that whatever it is that I'm missing looking for, I just will never find. And right. that resignation just, um, it feels solid. It feels like it's been with me as long as I can remember this life. Yes. And, yeah. I, I, and there's a lot of sadness associated with it. Sure. And I'm really interested in knowing from you how, how you might suggest working with that. It's not difficult. But it's so much, it's so, it's so close to you that you can't actually get, get it, kind of thing, you know. Simply, I mean, it's, it's so simple. You're going to say, well, that's, you know, I want something more expensive than that. You know, it's very simple. It's just, can you really go into that sense of resignation, that feeling of resignation, and just let it, give it, give it a lot of space without thinking, without trying to do anything, just be totally resigned and totally sad consciously, you know, for a little while. Just just work with it. 
And then you'll find that it's not as thick as it used to be once you've done it a few times. Just be really fully consciously, fully resigned to everything. You know, think of being absolutely, you know, resigned. And deeply sad, you know. Because this sadness, it's only a feeling in the heart, but it will, if it's not seen for what it is, it will, it takes over the mind. You know, it takes over the whole mind. So maybe it's been deeply with you for so long, it will take a while maybe just to, for you not to, for one thing, to recognize that feeling. And you only recognize something. Like if, you know, let's say, if this clock was a whole room, was as big as a room, and I didn't know, know what this clock was, I didn't have a name, I couldn't recognize what it is. Imagine the clock as big as this room, it takes a whole space. And I didn't know there was a clock. And somebody say, you know, you are the clock. <laughs> say, me? Where? You know, where is the clock? Where is the clock? I don't know where it is. But then if I give a little bit of space and that clock shrinks a bit, and I see a little bit of space around it, say, oh, there is something there. And somebody say, this is a clock. It's got a name, clock. You know, you, you got a name already. It's called resignation and sadness. Okay. But you need to give it space to be able to see it. If it fills your whole psyche and you've believed it for so long, maybe, you know, then it's going to take a while, you know, patience. But then it's, it's wonderful because Kanti or patience is one of the supreme, supreme practice in the Buddhist teaching. Do you know that when he had, he was teaching 1250 arahants during his lifetime. The first teaching he gave to those 1250 arahants, and they were not dummies obviously, you can imagine. I mean they were, they finished the work, they're not sort of, you know, little kind of waifs. The first line of the teaching he gave on that day, which was a full moon of February, became the Magga Puja, on the Magga Puja day, was patience, endurance are the highest austerities. Now austerities, I know it's not a word that's very liked in our society. We don't want to be austere, we just want to have fun, okay. But what he meant, it's like a, a discipline. And what he means, it's really, um, how can I make it nice for you? <laughs> Discipline. Um, you know, it's the highest level of practice, patience. You don't know that because in our society, in our culture, patience, patience means nothing. It doesn't have any connotation with anything intelligent, patience. Have you noticed? Am I right or wrong? Maybe I'm deluded. I don't know. But usually patience, and my, when I was younger, you know, patience was just what granny did because they had Alzheimer or it could not be anything else with patience, being patient, because they just, they couldn't do anything else. But if you go to Thailand, for example, in the Buddhist country, it's very interesting to actually get, be part of a culture which, where the concepts have different association than ours. And in Thailand, Kanti or patience, is highly praised. Highly, it's like a symbol of intelligence and a symbol of wisdom. When you're patient, it means you're wise, you're intelligent, you are strong, you are, you know, a wonderful person. 
So, sorry to have, I'm sort of deviated a little bit. But for you to realize that it will take patience to actually give the space, breathing and out through these feelings, and just put yourself in a position where you're really going to look at it as if you were under a microscope, and you're looking at it. It's not you anymore, okay? You're looking, and you're seeing for what it is. Very simple. Doesn't, it won't take very long. You'll, you'll see it quickly enough. And then you realize, oh, I'm not the resigned person. And then you come back again. Well, that's all right. <laughs> I'm a resigned. Oh, my God, you know. What did Sister Sundra say? Okay. You know, that's how we can use a teaching. You know, you kind of fall, fall back into the old traps and out. And This is what strengthens us. You know, when you fall back into it, that's a moment where you can get strong. If you didn't have any desire, as I tend to say, you would never be able to let go of desires. I mean, the reason why you practice letting go is because you have desires. The, re- the reason why you practice is because you have these things, you know, this sense of being stuck with a feeling of resignation and so on. So it's not bad. It's very good. It's a good, te- a good teacher. sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, we do a lot of chanting. We do plenty of chanting. We chant in the morning, we chant in the evening, we chant 20 minutes before we meditate ourselves. No, no, no. Well, that's monastic, you know, culture, as they say in America. <laughs> we are a culture in ourselves. I never heard this in Europe, that we are a culture, but it's, you know, in, in monastery, we chant every morning 20 minutes. And every evening, 20 minutes. And you can chant to in, in your little meditation hut to the top of your voice all day if you like to. You know. <laughs> Some people do chanting quite a bit, yes. Yeah. It does. I mean, it, sure, sure. When you concentrate on something good, it will always do that, you know. It will raise your, your energy to the heart, yes. You know, yeah. Oh yeah, some of the nuns do even uh, what are they called? It's a, a kind of um, I don't remember the name. Um, it's kind of making a sound that comes from. In, do you know this this technique where you produce a sound that can naturally? Um, I don't have the word. I can't remember the anyway. She uses that one of the nuns to, you know, to bring up energy because she's not very well sometimes. So. But uh, it's not in the sutta. I mean, in our scriptures, you never find that anywhere. You know, no, because uh, you know there are other techniques to raise the energy. You wouldn't believe that, for example, restraint can actually raise your energy. Ooh, don't like restraint. Yes, restraint. 
you know, channeling your energy in a good way can actually raise your energy enormously. When you stop destroying life, when you stop taking things that don't belong to you, when you stop, uh, you know, your sexual misconduct, when you stop unskillful speech, when you stop taking drugs and intoxicant that confuse your mind, then you gather a lot of energy. And if you know how to handle that energy, then it can raise, it can come up into the heart. But you need to practice. Meditation is what transforms this energy. Most of the time we don't have much energy. It's dissipated, completely dissipated through the, through the six senses, through the eyes and nose, tongue, body. You know, we, we, and thinking and talking dissipate the energy enormously. Talking particularly. It really is. It's, it's like a gateway for... Losing all one's strengths. You you notice for those who have done a retreat, sometimes you are you know you you have a lot of energy on retreat, and then of course when you haven't spoken for ten days, what happened on the eleventh days? You know, it's like people just chat all day long, chock a block, you know, non-stop, <laughs> day and night for about two days, you know, trying to convince other people how wonderful it has been. <laughs> But, you know, with, on the third day, they're completely exhausted. <laughs> the high, that the, the, the energy, the momentum of energy that's been kind of produced during the retreat suddenly, you know, it's, it's become exhausted after a while. So, this is just to encourage you to keep the precepts. But I'm not joking. I mean, the precepts are not just, uh, you know, a set of little do's and don'ts kind of thing. They are, uh, the, you remember, it's a mind. We, we, the precept are the mind. <laughs> you know, what I mean by that is that they're pointing to the mind. And they, they're guiding the mind. They're channeling the energy of the mind. They are transforming the energy of the mind. They're helping to let go of the habits of the mind and so on. So when you talk about precepts, you're talking about mind. Remember that. Not talking about being a good girl or a good boy, you know, not drinking, um, you know, so I'll be a good, you know, not having too many girlfriends or boyfriends, so I'll be good, I'll be a good boy to my mummy, she'll be proud of me. You know, it's not that. Precepts are not about this. Even though <coughs> the Buddha said that, uh, you know, having the reason why he um, he um, spoke about this uh, ethical standards as a foundation of practice. Do you know why? Because the result of uh, committing oneself to skillful behavior by body, speech, and mind, the result of that is that you don't have remorses. You don't have regrets in your heart all the time. That's simple as this. Your heart is not filled with regret and remorses. You know? And that's very important, isn't it? A lot of our heart is, much of our experience is one of regret and feeling remorseful about what we've done. You know? <coughs> but they are also, a path, it's also a path of compassion. So whatever you do wrong, 
is not to be, you know, you don't need to pile it up with guilt and blame, self-blame. You just need to pick yourself up and with compassion to start again, begin again, beginning again, always beginning again. We fall, we crash, we do it all wrong, we begin again, we fall again, we begin again. Hundreds of times we fall, hundred times we begin again. And your strength is not about falling or not falling, it's beginning again. That's a real strength. That will, what, that's what will get you through everything. No matter how many times you get it wrong in your practice or in your life, you begin again. And of course it's an act of faith. And, and you know, undoubtedly, it's an act of, you know, we won't call it faith because that doesn't mean so much for us, you know. But it's trusting that by beginning again, you're on the right track. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Yes, Jill? In the last five minutes, will you teach us a chant? Teach you, um, oh, is it a chant? Sure. Okay. A glass of water would be good. But, I'm, okay, well, we can just repeat after me, I suppose, the chant. Do you have the chant somewhere on the, on the sheet there? On the, there was a meta chant somewhere. Oh, a meta. I think we, we only have five minutes, so maybe a short chant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had this idea that I'm going to talk to Gil about it, but it's probably it's going to be probably probably disagree with me. But this is my this is my devilish mind. I think you should have a, a, a completely new format every time you come here. Totally, you don't know what's going to happen. That would be great, wouldn't it? No idea. Every time you come here, you have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, of course, you know it'd be meditation, sitting, and a talk, but you don't know how it's going to take. 